Well, it's my privilege to bring the word to you this morning. And as John has said, the uh, reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, 1 to 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Great, thanks Phil. And good morning everyone. It's good to be back up here. It feels like it's been a while. Um, put that down. Just real, really appreciate you giving such a warm welcome to the guest preachers we've had over the last few weeks. Um, it's been good to have a bit of a break while I've been doing weddings and National Assembly and also just having a bit of a holiday with the family. So thanks for that. This morning we're going to be getting into... Look, I've had a software update this morning as well. This is ridiculous. Anyway, it's a day for software updates. All right. Phil's just read for us Matthew chapter 5, 1 to 12, and this is the beginning of a new series we're doing this term in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the passage that we have looked at this morning is just the first part of the sermon, and it's, it's recorded for us across three chapters in Matthew chapter 5 to 7, and we're going to be working through this, these three chapters, this sermon of Jesus over the next few weeks, uh, over the next eight weeks, and we'll be doing it also in our Grace Community groups during the week. I thought before we get into it, before we get into Matthew 5, I'd like to give you a little bit of background as to how we ended up here, because four chapters of Matthew's Gospel have already happened. Uh, and so before we get to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew has already covered Jesus' birth, uh, his baptism, his desert temptations, and the calling of his first disciples. And we've also had, very importantly, his first public statement. If you've got a Bible with you, flick back just a, a verse. I'll put it up on the screen as well. Where Jesus said, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Very, very important in Matthew's Gospel to notice that statement of Jesus. It's the outset of his public ministry. And so it gives us the context for approaching the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has begun to teach about the fast-approaching kingdom of God, and he's calling people to sort out their lives in preparation for that kingdom. And as it turns out, though he's not just the teacher about God's kingdom, he's also the king of God's kingdom. And he himself is going to be key to sorting out uh, kingdom-ready lives. So if you've got a Bible open, I'd like you also then to look back at the end of chapter 4. So just before what Phil read for us. 
where it says that Jesus then went out through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from all across the Jordan. So in other words, because of Jesus' ministry, this this ministry of preparing people for the kingdom, he's attracting people from all over the land that used to belong to God's people. And he's also attracting people from outside the borders of what used to be Israel. And they're coming to Jesus because he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Through Jesus' words and actions, it also looks like the kingdom is coming about before their eyes. It's very exciting. And so this is what brings us to the beginning of chapter 5, where Jesus sees the crowds and he goes up on the mountain to teach his disciples in verse 1 and 2. Now, I just want to point out something here, and it's an important detail that we mustn't miss when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, because it's going to affect the way we read it. Jesus is going to teach his disciples, the ones he has called out, but in the presence of the crowds. This means that among those who hear his words in these three chapters, there are going to be insiders and outsiders. We've got to consider Jesus' words from both of these angles as we study these chapters together. At the very least, because it is given mostly to those on the inside, the sermon's purpose is to explain how followers of Jesus ought to live. But for those outside, it's meant to make them think and think hard about which kingdom they want to be part of and what it takes to get in. So, with that rather extended introduction out of the way, let's pray, and then we're going to get into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, no one speaks like you. We pray that as we hear your words today, that they take root in our hearts. We pray that you'd comfort and challenge and maybe even rebuke us You see our hearts today, and you know what we need. We pray this for your glory's sake. Amen. Well, if you could sit at Jesus' feet and be taught by Jesus in one sermon, what would you want to hear? What would you want him to say to you? Would you want him to give you answers to life's most perplexing questions? Like, Jesus, what about the dinosaurs? Would you expect him to tell you what's going to happen in the future? Would you expect him to tell you when you're going to go to be with him forever? Or would you expect him to teach you some sort of silver bullet skill for evangelism or for reading your Bible or for praying? Well, on the mountain in Matthew 5, Jesus pulls his new disciples away from the crowd and teaches them for the first time. And just so you know, this is the first of five major blocks of teaching of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. And a lot of what Matthew wants to show us about Jesus is his teaching about the kingdom. And so this is block one of Jesus' teaching in Matthew. And what Jesus has to teach them at the very outset of their ministry, of his ministry, is about their own hearts, how they need to live before God. Now, we're dealing with the very first part of the sermon this morning. It's sometimes called the Beatitudes. Uh, It's eight sayings of Jesus that all start with the word blessed. You may have heard the word Beatitudes before. 
Uh, I remember once a youth Bible study series on the passage trying to be cool and calling them the B-attitudes. And I think it's probably not a, not a bad way to think about them, actually. The word beatitude is not in the Bible, but it comes from the Latin word for blessed. And as we've said, it's, it's, the, it's the word which starts each of these statements of Jesus. Now, I think you could preach a sermon on each of these beatitudes, but instead I'd like us to look at the beatitudes as a whole, as a unit this morning, which is the way Jesus preached them. And we're going to do that by looking at three themes which tie the statements together. First of all, what they say about being blessed. Secondly, what they say about fulfillment. And finally, what they say about the kingdom of God and the prize we have to look forward to. So if you've got the outline in front of you, it'll help you to follow where we're heading this morning. And here's our first heading, bless you. Notice that first word, blessed, at the beginning of each of the statements. Now, just to say, you can count the statements in different ways. I think there are eight statements, and that verse 10 and 12 are meant to be taken as just one statement, even though it says blessed twice. But what does it mean to be blessed? Is it just something we say when someone sneezes? Or is it the hashtag we put at the end of our filtered Instagram post of our acai bowl in front of a beautiful Malulabar sunrise? You know, hashtag living the life, hashtag blessed. At the very least, whatever way we use it today, the word blessing is all about receiving something good, isn't it? Maybe from outside ourselves, whether it's nature or or Mother Earth or some sort of God presence. That's the way people use blessed today. I feel really blessed because of what I have. Now, in many ways, this is what the Bible means when it uses the word blessing, but the Bible also gives us a much clearer picture about what blessing really is. Blessing is something good given to us by the God who made the world and everything in it and who keeps it spinning. It's God's good gift. But it's also more than the gift. Because that Greek word that Jesus uses, uses for blessed can also be translated as happy, And I think this is useful to keep in mind. Now, of course, he doesn't mean happy in kind of some sort of, you know, sort of whimsical and shallow kind of emotional way. That would make no sense of verse 4. I mean, happy are those who mourn. Happy are the unhappy. Well, what Jesus is actually saying, though, is that there is something to be experienced in these blessings. It's not just objective, it's subjective as well. What Jesus is saying is that there is life and richness for us to feel and know now in the present as we actually experience God giving his goodness to us. This is why I've titled this message, Real Fulfillment. Because what Jesus is describing in these blessings is a life of real fulfillment. Where God's people thrive and they flourish because their lives are entirely aligned with him. And so they receive their fulfillment entirely from him. Well, if you come to church this morning and maybe you're feeling unfulfilled in your life, maybe you're feeling a bit flat spiritually or like you're always chasing a moving target, then maybe these are the words you need to hear today about what it really means to be fulfilled as a follower of Christ. Because Jesus offers fulfillment, the gift and the experience of it to his people from God in this sermon. But how do we get the fulfillment? 
How do we get the blessing? This moves us to the second point on the outline. When, you know, when we talk about fulfillment, we usually mean doing things that make us happy. Now, to get fulfillment, you could go all Marie Kondo on your clutter, and you could do a massive tip run to spark more joy in your life. Maybe that'll give you some fulfillment. Maybe it's getting on board with the barefoot investor, sorting out your finances so you'll never have to worry about money again, and you feel that that will be fulfilling. Could be starting your own business to be your own boss and pursue your passion. You might think about that as fulfillment. Or it could just be that cold beer that you're going to have around the fire pit tonight. That could be fulfilling. Now, none of these things are bad things necessarily, but we've got to be careful of expecting these things to actually give us real and lasting fulfillment. Because they're nothing like what Jesus is offering in these blessings. I wonder if you noticed that as we read it. Because as ironic as it might seem, rather than finding fulfillment by filling ourselves up, Jesus is offering a fulfillment which actually comes from emptying ourselves and letting God fill us. Letting God do the filling. And I want to show you what Jesus means by just briefly running through these eight statements that he makes. So the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 3. When Jesus says blessed are the poor, he doesn't mean that God doesn't like rich people. That's why he adds blessed are the poor in spirit. This is something going on inside us. It's not about what we have out here. It's about what we have in here. What does it mean, though? Well, the the idea of poverty of spirit actually comes out of the Old Testament. You might remember Jesus' first sermon. It's recorded in Luke chapter 4 at the Nazareth synagogue where he says, he stands up and he says, I have come to preach good news to the poor. It comes from Isaiah 61.1. And you might want to think back to last term's series on Isaiah to get an understanding of who the poor actually are. It was the poor of those who had suffered under God's hand as God had judged the sin of the nation. But they're also the ones who'd not given up trusting God. They'd had their land taken away. They had their king taken away. They had their wealth taken away. They had their national autonomy removed by successive empires that rolled through and raised things to the ground as instruments of God's justice. They were taken into exile and returned to a city and a temple that was an embarrassment uh, of its former glory. They knew they deserved nothing better from God They knew they had nothing to offer God. So they clung desperately to his promises that one day he would send a king and a rescuer to make everything right again. These are the poor Jesus is talking about in verse 3. And Jesus' words certainly are good news to them. But this is also like the headline beatitude from which all the others need to flow. The ones who are truly blessed are the ones who know they are poor in spirit, who have no assurance in themselves, who have no pride, no confidence in themselves. doesn't mean they lack confidence, but it doesn't come from in here. It doesn't come from me. They're never arrogant because they know they've got no place for that. They never put others down because they know that is absolutely out of line. They know they have nothing to offer God and who know that they deserve nothing better from God than justice from him for their sin. 
They're the ones who come to God saying with the old hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, and they live like it. They're the ones who identify deeply with Robert Murray McShane's famous statement, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. I've actually just finished reading through uh, Scott Pape's The Barefoot Investor. I think it's got some very good advice which echoes biblical principles in many cases. But the final page has just got three words in very big letters. It just says, you've got this. Well, friends, the, the poor in spirit know that we haven't got this. But God has, and that's how they live their lives. This really is the headline beatitude, knowing that I've got nothing, but God's got everything. And it helps us understand each of the beatitudes that follow. So secondly, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. I've just been reading through Martin, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones's collection of sermons on these passages and he's I guess typical for his time he suggests that Christians should really be very careful about ever laughing or smiling might not go that far but if you know who you truly are before a holy God you'll be very wary of the temptation to have your spiritual senses numbed by constantly chasing pleasure and entertainment sort of things which blurs our vision so that we can't see the painful reality of a world that's on a collision course with the justice of Almighty God. It doesn't mean we'll never smile and laugh, but it means we'll have a sober and a serious view of ourselves and of others and of the world. And so rather than only mourning when we lose something, when we lose a cherished person or a cherished possession, we will mourn the greatest loss there ever was, the, the tragedy of the broken relationship between God and humanity that was brought about by sin and all of its effects. So those who mourn will be the ones who actually grieved by their own sin, the sin that put Jesus on the cross. They will grieve sin in others. They will grieve sin's effect on the world. They will look at the world through tears at friends and family who are still unforgiven by Jesus. So let me ask you, when was the last time you felt grieved by your own sin? And perhaps when was the last time when you read a, a highly charged opinion piece on the ABC, spewing hatred for the God of the Bible and all who believe in him, and instead of arcing up, your heart was broken for the writer? Blessed are those who mourn, says Jesus, who see the world as it actually really is. They will be comforted. Well, thirdly, blessed are the meek. If you know who you truly are before God, you'll be very careful about putting your, yourself in God's capable hands rather than in your clenched fists. Now, we mustn't confuse meekness with weakness. Because in, in the face of a challenge or a conflict, meekness might actually be the strongest response. It's putting aside self-interest. It's not constantly fighting and agitating for my rights and my freedoms. It's listening more and perhaps talking less when there is disagreement. It's knowing that there are actually very few hills worth dying on. A lot of Christians seem to be making a lot of angry noise about lots of issues at the moment, whether online or in person. 
remember, while we might fear the loss of our supposed freedoms and our supposed rights, Jesus says, in the end, the meek will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. Fourthly, and I know we're going through these very quickly, but uh, time is ticking. The Martin Lloyd-Jones book I'm reading at the moment, he did 63 sermons on the whole three chapters. We're not doing that, so don't worry. We try to do this one in one. The number four, verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What drives you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What's the thing you want more than anything else in life? Is it to have the best relationship with God that you possibly can? Well, that's what righteousness is. It's a right relationship with God. Jesus isn't offering blessing to those who compartmentalize their Christianity. It's not for those who give God a few minutes here and there, and maybe an hour and a bit on a Sunday, who divide up their lives into what belongs to God and what belongs to me. Jesus is saying that the ones who are blessed, the ones who will experience real fulfillment, are the ones who want to please God more than anything else, for whom a right relationship with God is as important, if not more, than food and water, basic life-giving necessities. They're the ones who, again in the words of an old hymn, because the old hymn writers knew how to put these things, they're the ones who know they need him every hour. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Fifthly, blessed are the merciful, verse 7. When someone wrongs you or simply fails to meet your expectations, what's your first reaction? Is it to punish them? Is it to make them pay? If you know who you are before a holy God, especially in the light of the gospel, you'll know you have no right to withhold forgiveness, to punish or to take revenge. Being merciful is all about willing to, being willing to absorb the cost of injury and hurt, of unmet expectations yourself for the sake of the other person. Of course, it's what God has done for us in Christ. Blessed are the merciful. Number six, blessed are the pure in heart. Verse eight. If you know who you are before a holy God, you know God sees your heart, all of it. And so the pure in heart are those without hidden agendas, without ulterior motives. What you see is what you get. You can take them at their word. Instead of hypocrisy and deceit, the pure in heart are sincere and authentic. Martin Luther, the uh, 16th century German reformer, he he had a way with words, making you feel good about yourself in a kind of rough sort of way. He gives us a striking picture of this kind of inward purity. And he says, Though a common laborer, a shoemaker, or a blacksmith may be dirty and sooty, or may smell because he's covered with dirt and pitch, and though he stinks outwardly, inwardly he is pure incense before God, because he ponders the word of God in his heart and obeys it. Blessed are the pure in heart. Uh, Blessed are the peacemakers, verse 9, number 7. Are you a peacemaker or are you a peacekeeper? I think we often confuse the two. 
We confuse peacemaking with peacekeeping by not getting involved, not seeking to repair the relationship, especially when they're not ours. We think it would cost me too much, when it would be too messy or too uncomfortable, too awkward. Uh, Returning from a meeting with Adolf Hitler in 1938, at which it was agreed that their two countries would not go to war, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain famously declared that he'd returned from Germany bringing peace with honour. I believe it is peace for our time, he said. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Go home and get a nice quiet sleep. Less than a year later, the Second World War erupted when Germany invaded Poland. Chamberlain's peace in our time was actually no peace at all. To be a peacemaker, though, means the opposite. It means getting involved with repairing broken relationships, with trying to preserve, without trying to preserve self at all costs. It means admitting wrong and asking for forgiveness. It might be costly to be a peacemaker, yes, but Jesus says they'll be called sons or daughters of God. Finally, verse 10, blessed are those persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is a blessing for those who are persecuted. And no, this is not about wearing masks or getting vaccinated or density limits in church. That's not what we're talking about here. This is persecution for righteousness' sake. Because these blessings, friends, this lifestyle that Jesus is describing is countercultural. These are attitudes of heart which fit in God's kingdom far better than they fit in the kingdom of the world. The kind of dog-eat-dog, virtue-signaling, outraged world where where self-expression and self-fulfillment is the ultimate moral paradigm. It doesn't fit. So those who follow Jesus in the world, who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, will be the black sheep of the world. Precisely because they follow Jesus. Precisely because they care more about what a holy God thinks of them than what their friends and family and colleagues think of them or what their social media followers think of them. And, says Jesus, they will be blessed, they will be fulfilled, despite the whole world being against them. Now, taken together, these eight Beatitudes, they really do give us a picture of the heart of a true follower of Jesus. Someone who knows they've been forgiven by what Jesus did on the cross. As we said earlier, they're all about emptying us of ourselves, knowing that we've got nothing to offer God, and letting God fill us up with his blessing. In many ways, it's kind of a parallel to Jesus' call to discipleship in Matthew 16, where he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know, it's a little bit like... If you looked at a true disciple, that's what you would see on the outside, someone denying himself and taking up his cross and following Jesus. But if you could give them kind of a spiritual MRI, you would see the eight Beatitudes on the inside. I think these last 18 months of the COVID pandemic have had a significant effect on all of us. And one thing I think it's done is it has made us more protective of ourselves than we were before. Now, it's good to be cautious, especially in the current circumstances, but I wonder if you've noticed this, how how the uncertainty and anxiety seems to be starting to turn us all into hoarders in one way or another. Now, I don't mean that you're buying 50 tins of baked beans in case we have another lockdown, 
And I certainly hope that none of us here were wrestling in the aisles over the last pack of dunny rolls at Coles. But has the uncertainty and anxiety of the time we're living in made us perhaps more protective than we should be, than disciples of Jesus should be, with our time, our money, our gifts, um, our skills, our, our plans and aspirations, our, our possessions, our reputations, our freedoms, our comfort, our security? Have we perhaps become a little bit more protective than we should be of these things? It's honestly made me wonder if this is the reason why we've had such a hard time filling our ministry teams this year. And look, a huge thank you to those who do serve faithfully. We do really appreciate it. But it does raise the question of why, why we struggle to commit to things is because we feel we need to protect ourselves. Maybe it's made us more eager to read the news or our social media feeds just to know what's going on than we are to read God's word and know that whatever's going on will actually take care of itself because God's got it. Has it maybe made us want to max out our leisure time or our work time just in case there's another lockdown rather than maxing out our time with God and with his people? I think it's natural that when we fear we're losing or we might lose something, we want to hold on to it tighter than we possibly can. But this, says Jesus, is not the way to true fulfillment. And it's not the way his people live under a holy God, those who belong to his kingdom. Instead, we're called to be the poor who know that we have nothing and are nothing and that God must fill us. And rather than seeking self-fulfillment, we empty ourselves of everything and let God fill us with his blessing and his fulfillment. And you know, this really shouldn't come as a surprise to us, though, because we follow Jesus. And though the Beatitudes might seem in many ways like an impossible ideal, they accurately describe the way Jesus lived. Jesus was poor. And I don't just mean he didn't have a place to lay his head, but read, listen to what Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 tells us about Jesus, that he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, though he was in very nature God. Jesus mourned. In Luke chapter 13, his heart was broken over the people of Jerusalem who had rejected him and with him their chance of salvation from God's judgment. Jesus was meek. Peter tells us, Peter who knew Jesus and saw Jesus up close, he says that when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 23. Jesus pursued righteousness. The night before he went to the cross, what was his prayer? Agonizing over, not my will, but your will be done, God. Jesus was merciful. Just think of, what, of, of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 when he told her, neither do I condemn you, but from now on go and sin no more. And of course, he's been merciful to us, dying for us on the cross when we didn't deserve it. And we could go on, but I'm sure you see the point. Real fulfillment as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, will never come from trying to fill ourselves up, especially with the stuff the world says we need to fill ourselves with. 
It comes from emptying ourselves and instead receiving God's blessing to live a life that mirrors that of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how we truly experience real real fulfillment. It's that exchange of self-fulfillment to God-fulfillment in Christ. Well, this brings us to our third and final point, that there is a kingdom prize to look forward to. And here's another reason why I think there are eight actual Beatitudes, because number one and number eight They both end the same way. I wonder if you noticed that in verse 3 and verse 10. They both end by saying, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then kind of verse 11 and 12 just expands on that. I think it's meant to tell us that the other six consequences, so being comforted, inheriting the earth, being satisfied, receiving mercy, seeing God, uh, being called sons and daughters of God, they're all parallels of what it means to receive the kingdom of heaven. And this is what makes replacing self-fulfillment with God-fulfillment worth it. Because there is a kingdom prize to be gained. Excuse me. So let's be careful of thinking that these beatitudes are here to tell us how we earn our place in the kingdom. Because they're not. The beatitudes don't get us into the kingdom. Jesus gets us into the kingdom. But those in the kingdom will live like Jesus and will have this prize to look forward to. And this is where verse 11 and 12 is critical. There's a major shift in verse 11 as Jesus moves abruptly from the third person where he's saying, blessed are those, to the second person. Blessed are you. He's making huge assumptions about the people in front of him. He's making statements of fact about who they are. So please look with me at verse 11. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you see what's going on here? For these disciples, their reward in heaven is already secure. Jesus puts them in the same category as the Old Testament prophets. They're already in the kingdom. So the Beatitudes aren't a map into the kingdom. They're a way of life for those who are already in, who live in imitation of their king, who know that without him they are nothing, and who know that being with him in his kingdom forever is better by far than anything this world has to offer with all its treasures for 80 or 90 years. In fact, it even makes rejection and character assassination and the loss of rights and freedoms worth it. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, as we move to close this morning, and as with any part of the Bible, we need to know what to do with Jesus' words. Today's Sunday. It's great to be in church together. It's great to see so many faces back in church today after a holiday. But Monday's coming, and with it all the pressures of life this side of heaven... So what about Monday morning? Well, if you're dreading tomorrow because you know you've got to go back to the world, away from your church family, away from your Christian friends, and having to do life as a stranger and an alien in the world, Jesus' words are good news for you. Take heart at what Jesus says here. Remember that God blesses the poor in spirit. He blesses the mourners. He blesses the persecuted. 
Remember who you are before God and avoid the temptation to try and fill yourself up. Instead, start tomorrow by asking God to fill you up. Maybe read these blessings and remind yourself what is true for you. And remember that there is a kingdom prize waiting for you at the end, which Jesus has secured for you, which is better than anything you could imagine. But if tomorrow is the start of yet another week on the hamster wheel where you're chasing self-fulfillment, can I suggest that today is a great day to do business with God? Maybe you need to repent of your pride, of, of your indifference, of your harshness with others, with your lack of mercy, with your take-it-or-leave-it attitude towards your relationship with God. Ask Him to remind you who you truly are before Him, poor in spirit, and ask Him to make you less like you and more like Jesus. I can also say, if you're sitting, listening today online or in the building and you're thinking, well, this all sounds great, but it, it's very idealistic. I could never actually live like that. Well, let me tell you, you're absolutely right. You can't live like that. No one can live like this. But as we've said, this is not the way into Jesus' kingdom. Jesus is the way into Jesus' kingdom. You need to ask God to forgive you for trying to seek self-fulfillment. And ask him to give you a place in, in his kingdom, not because of anything you've done or anything you've got to offer. Because remember, everyone is poor in spirit, whether they realize it or not. But ask him to give you a place in his kingdom because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. And ask him to work in you to make you more like Jesus. The Beatitudes are the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, and they're important because they give us a snapshot of the heart of a true disciple. And as we move on from here into the next few chapters, Jesus is going to tease out what this actually means practically. So I hope you join us next week and the weeks after as we do that. But for now, we need to be clear about what it means to be truly fulfilled. It means to recognize who we truly are before God. And to receive true fulfillment, not from ourselves, but from him, as we wait eagerly to be with him in heaven, enjoying his blessings forever. And though, yes, we're poor, we mourn, we're meek, and we're persecuted, it doesn't mean that Christians are just left with a kind of life of miserable dejection as we wait for Jesus to come back. Because as strange as it might seem, God's fulfillment means that those who live a life reflecting Jesus will be the most content, the most joyful, and the most fulfilled people in the world. How about that? Well, let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, it's true that no one speaks like you. We pray that you'd help us to hear your words to us this morning, that you might write these blessings on our hearts to encourage us, to comfort us, and to help us long to be with you forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.